Good morning, everybody. Good. Okay. Well, if you, uh, I like that. That was, that was one that like, kept going. I like that. Good morning. For those of you who are online, we welcome you, and we're thankful to God that we get to worship together. As we get to look at the scriptures today, I invite you to turn to Romans, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And trying to wait just a second to get, get some of the sound fixed, and we will move forward. Romans chapter 15, as we are seeking today to answer this question, how do we have unity amidst disagreement? How do we have unity Amidst disagreement. If you've been following along, we are going to be diving into a series uh, on the Psalms, praying the Psalms, and we're going to be honing in. The Psalms are divided into books, and we're going to be honing in on book two, Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. And I took some time to look at Psalm 46 to remind us what we are about as a people, as a church, as individuals who follow Jesus, that we treasure Christ above all. Last week we dove into Psalm 47, and we reminded one another that there is one king that is always on the throne, who can always be trusted, and we just needed to be reminded of these truths. And so today, before we uh, continue on in our series in uh, praying the Psalms, I wanted to address this question. How can we have unity amidst disagreement? The answer is going to be this. Take unity seriously and understand that unity is not uniformity. Take unity seriously and understand that unity is not uniformity. What I want to do is I want to read Romans 15, 5 to 7. If you're a guest with us, we so welcome you. We normally take a passage and explain that passage. Today is going to be a little different. And there's going to be a lot of passages that we're going to go through. As in the past two sermons, we've taken one passage and even honed in on a few phrases and tried to dive deeply and meditate on that. In this one, we're going to take this concept of unity amidst disagreement and we're going to see what the Bible has to say more comprehensively. So, but I will read Romans 15. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read verses 5 to 7 because this is the aim. Romans 15 verses 5 to 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together, let's say that word together, together you may with one voice, let's say this word together, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit in this moment. A remarkable sense of your power and your presence to come and abide among your people. These precious people don't need to hear me. They need to hear from you. They need Christ. 
And oh God, I just pray that you would so work in this moment that the things of this earth and that earthly voices would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And what would happen is that God, you, we pray this passage would happen. There would be a togetherness of your people that is so shocking and so harmonious that you get glory in our church, in our city, and to the ends of the earth. Father, this is what you have promised in Christ, and we ask for it. And we ask that you would give us strength and love to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So be with us, we pray. Just come, move. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article in USA Today by uh, Elias, Aliyah Dagstegir, and it's interesting. You know, <laughs> this is just evidence of the climate in which we are in. Like, the fact that I said USA Today could tempt people to think, oh, well, that's where he's getting his information. I'm not listening to him. Isn't it crazy? Like, we can't even listen. Like, we can't even listen to different views of thought. I just want you to know that's not the only thing I read. <laughs> Here's the quote. Here's the title. A close presidential election deepens the nation's divide. How do we live together now? Here's a quote. Now voters on either side of the political aisle must do what for some feels impossible. Coexist. Live and work together. Sometimes sit down for dinners together. Send their children to schools together all the while feeling confounded about how the other voted as they did. Welcome to where we are. The world is looking for a picture of peace. Groaning. Longing. Looking for a picture of peace. The question is, will they find it where they're supposed to? In the church. Will they? We can't control everyone else, but we can control us. We can fight to be a people of peace. The picture, hands down, according to the scriptures, is that the people of God, the church, are meant to be a place of peace in the midst of disagreement. A place and a people where differing viewpoints can come together and live in such harmony that God gets glory. The world is longing for a picture. And the church in general is failing miserably. There are times when people inside the church feel more of a freedom to disagree with lost neighbors than they do with one another in the church in fear of condemnation. It's sin. It's not how it's supposed to be. And we must fight not against each other. Our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is against the devil and against the temptation to sin. A portion of Christianity so afraid of liberalism possibly happening in the church, they add laws that the Bible doesn't add. So narrowly binding the conscience of individuals like the Pharisees did, stating you can't be a Christian if blank, but it's not found in the Bible. This rhetoric divides unnecessarily, 
And because we love law, we love to just be told what to do rather than walk by the Spirit. We bite into it. It's just easier. Tell me when I should brush my teeth. Tell me how I should go to work. Tell me every single ounce of, like, what should I eat? Just, just give me a bunch of law. That way I know. <laughs> when Christ came, it says he abolished the, the, the commandments and the ordinances. He established the law of Christ. We're not antinomian, that is. We're not anti-law. But we can't say what the Bible doesn't say. Make laws where there aren't laws. This is the forbidden, forbidden fruit of Pharisaism. But another branch of Christianity is taking arguments so personally that any disagreement is an attack on their essence. It's an attack on their personhood. It's an attack on their value simply by not being agreed with. So you can't even have a conversation about differing opinions because it has so deeply hurt them. And this too is sin. Both groups tend to call each other names rather than listen and discuss issues. And with such idolatry politics rather than identity, and with such systemic name-calling, no wonder there's not peace. But the Bible demands a different picture. And the beautiful thing, Christ has purchased a different picture. So, dear friends, I do I have a dream when Republicans and Democrats can prize Jesus so much that they aren't shaken by differing opinions. And I have a dream that we would be such listeners and lovers of people that even when we don't agree, we can understand why believers who genuinely love God voted Republican and they're probably sad or angry or afraid. And we can also understand why believers who voted Democrat are probably excited and hopeful. I have a dream that the people of God would stop trying to look like the world of parties and factions and would choose biblically defined, truth-based love that people with differing opinions would love each other so deeply that they eat together, they pray together, they sing together, they worship together, they cry together. I have a dream that Christians would look more like Jesus than the world. He made liberals and legalists very uncomfortable. But he did so, giving his life so that in him we may be one new people, having peace with God through repentance and faith in Jesus and peace with one another. How do we have unity amidst disagreement? These two main ideas. We take unity seriously. And we understand unity is not uniformity. How do we have unity amidst disagreement? We take unity seriously, and we understand unity is not uniformity. Let's take the first one. We take unity seriously. <laughs> just, just begin to do some searches around some common words, and all of a sudden, the emphasis on unity is not only inescapable, it's overwhelming. Look up the word unity. Look up the word same, like same mind, same heart. And here's some of the things you find. 
We take unity seriously because the Scripture's emphasis on unity is overwhelming. Listen to Psalm 133.1. Behold, now we're just going to go through a truckload of Scriptures right now, okay? The point is this. The Scriptures overwhelmingly say we should be unified in Christ, okay? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, that is, spiritual brothers and sisters, dwell in, say the word, Unity, unity. Ephesians 4, verse 3. I urge you to walk in a manner that looks like you've been saved. (laughs) I urge you. Let's walk in a manner that looks like the living God is in your heart. Okay, what would that look like? Well, here's what the scriptures say. With all humility over against arrogance. With all gentleness over against harsh edgy, disrespectful tone. With patience over against, I have to say this now, I have to respond immediately. No, you don't. Bearing with one another in love that is choosing someone else's needs above your own. And then it says, eager. Like you're eager for your favorite meal. Eager To do the hard work of maintenance, maintain good oil changes, right? Regular checkups, get your tires aligned so they don't fall off one day. Regular maintenance to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Whose ultimate work is unity? It's the Spirit's work in the bond of peace. It's important, friends. So Ephesians 4.3, the pastors of the church are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why would they do that? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. Maturity means you work towards unity. And that's why we're being equipped. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Ephesians 4, 4 4-6 There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's his point? We are what? One. Unified. There's a oneness to the people of God. Let alone there are phrases all throughout the New Testament. Phrases like fellow heirs. We've got a common home and a common destiny. Ephesians 3.6 and 1 Peter 3.7. We're of the same body. The same body. And then Philippians 2.3 says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and this is a rhetorical device, there is encouragement in Christ for those who are followers of Jesus. So if you've been encouraged in Jesus, and I know you have, if there's been any comfort from His love, and I know there has been, if there's been any participation in the Spirit, like the Spirit of God has been at work in your life, and I know He has been, any affection and sympathy, there's a love that bubbled up in your heart for God and for one another 
There was a brokenheartedness over other people being broken and hurt. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Please, stop acting as if unity is secondary. It's pervasive. It's primary. As Paul is writing these letters, he is writing these letters so that they are unified around a common Christ. And they are unified as one body. Why? Why is it so important? Jesus tells us why unity is a big deal. John 17, verses 20 to 21, he says this. He says, I don't ask for these only, that is, not only for those who are near to me, my apostles, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's all believers. That they may all be, what's the next word? One, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now here's the so that clause. What's the point? Why would God show up and say, Jesus and I and the Spirit, we're one, we're unified, and we are pressing towards the church being unified. Why? So that, here's the answer, the world may believe that you've sent me. The world may believe. Sadly, the world is not believing that lives have been changed by the glorious Christ who died for sinners. And some of that is owing to the poor picture of unity and oneness that we portray to the world. Jesus is passionate about his glory, about being seen as better and sufficient and enough for the entire universe. And we have the privilege to so work through our disagreements that we're unified, we're one, and in so being, the world might start believing where otherwise they would not have. They might start believing. There is a God in the universe who can take war and make peace. Spiritual war, war in the heart. So friends, this is why John 13 is so clear. By this, all people will know that you are my followers, you're my disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. This is what unifies us. This word, it's small, but boy is it potent. Love for one another. So, unity is a top priority for God because it's about His glory. And it's about the whole world bowing to Him as King. It's important to Him. And so, therefore, unity demands. It demands this sense of endurance. It demands this sense of patience and humility. Demands gentleness. Unity demands truth in love. And let's be really clear. Unity demands truth in love. Love is not truthless, and truth is not loveless. Truth is not harsh, and love is not relatively wishy-washy. It's defined by the Scriptures. 
All of this leads us to our second point. We've got to take unity seriously because God's glory is at stake. But we also have to understand that unity is not uniformity. Oneness is not complete sameness. There is a unity amidst a glorious diversity, and that's how God designed it. So, there are three ideas here. Unity is not uniformity. And so here's what you need to know unity assumes in the Bible. Unity assumes conflict, so expect it. Unity assumes conflict, so expect it. Unity assumes difference, so delight in it. You're like, that's impossible. I get it. Let's just keep going. Unity assumes there is a way to live in peaceable agreement, so strive for it. Unity assumes conflict, so expect it. Unity assumes difference, so delight in it. Unity assumes there is a way to live in peaceable agreement, so strive for it. Let's look at the first one. Unity assumes conflict, so expect it. Now, if you're doing searches for unity in the Scripture, you'll look up unity. You'll look up sameness. You'll look up the word one. But there's also another image of the church. It's the image of family. The image of family. That image is meant to be this wonderful picture of we don't agree on everything, but in some senses, we don't have a choice but to be committed to each other. I know that you have different affections for different parts of your family. I get that. I get it. But this metaphor of family is crucial for us. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul has just gone into Corinth, and as he goes into Corinth, he commends the grace of God in their lives. And he says, I see so much varied grace in your life. There's just so much evidence of God's grace all over you. But now he says, don't waste it. And here's how you're wasting the grace of God in your life. You're fighting. Here's where we are. It's where we pick up right here in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers... Now this rightfully can be brothers and sisters. It is a familial term. It is not like the American how are you, which means almost nothing. Like it is, I don't really care how you are. I'm going to state it. I really don't even expect an answer. I'm just going to state it. Sometimes that's how we read brothers and sisters in the scriptures. Just like, okay, it doesn't, no, this is a meaningful terminology, concept, metaphor for the church. We're family. We're not like a family, we are family, bought by the blood of Jesus. And so he says, I appeal to you. It's not a throwaway term, because he knows the only way that what he's about to say can happen is if we remember we're unified as family. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How in the world do we get to be family? We worship one king, Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. Now, this is shocking. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. <laughs> be like, wouldn't that be great? Okay, go, agree. Good, we solved it. Let's move on. Like, it should be shocking to you. Because if you've read the New Testament, 
you know that Paul doesn't think that means you agree on everything. Just look at Romans 14. He spills a lot of ink in Romans 14 on the fact that you and I will disagree on secondary matters. It's just going to happen. And yet, he's bold enough to walk in and say, you guys need to agree. Once again, unity does not mean uniformity. But he's able to press on the unity. You guys must agree. Well, what are they fighting over? Let's look at it. That there may be no divisions among you. If we're contributing to the division, we are dabbling in sin. He says that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you are unified in the same mind and the same judgment. Now here's what the disunity looked like here. They started attaching themselves to certain teachers. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Some of you are so bold and courageous to say, I follow Christ. Then you're like, oh, and I get some extra street cred because they, that guy baptized me. So I've got like this more intimate relationship with them. And then so Paul feels this necessity to go like, I don't think I've baptized. I'm glad I hadn't baptized any of you. Oh, wait, I baptized a few of you. You know, he's just working through this. But the point here is this. They attach themselves to teachers. And they tried to divide over it. Oh, what a warning for today. What a warning for today can't tell you how many texts and emails and conversations I've had. Well, I just don't agree with this group of teaching. I agree with this group of teaching. It is a parroting of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, stop it. We've got to agree. We've got to work on this together. But here's what I want you to assume. Paul is assuming that conflict happens in the church. But here he's saying, there is a way to agree even when you disagree. There is a way to agree even when you disagree. This agreement is not you're right about everything. This agreement is we are of the same mind on the essential things. Christ and Him crucified. Therefore, we can work through these other things. And so, like in Corinth, we have preferred teachers, preferred teams, preferred politics, preferred ways of looking at the world. Everything is completely black and white or everything is completely relative. I don't commend either option. And now what we have is a people who also, they divide. They disagree. And over this season, we've been dividing over politics in ways that the church seems to be ripping itself apart. I was reading a book by Jonathan Lehman and Andy Nasir. About how, do you, uh, how do you live in agreement in the midst of our political world? And they gave a little bit of an illustration as to why this gets so tense. So God instituted the government in order to establish a basic platform of justice. 
for created individuals in his image. And so, if that's why he's created the government, to be an arm of justice, to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, 1 Peter. And then, the appropriate response for injustice is the gift of anger. Right? We, we should oppose injustice, right? Be angry and do not sin. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. He doesn't say no anger, he just says slow to anger. So, okay. So then when somebody disagrees with you politically, what happens? You believe their action, their advocacy is unjust. So then, what do you do? You get angry. It just seems natural and logical. Here's how the Bible talks about it. A heart of faith produces a life of works. Works don't save you. They are the fruit and evidence of faith alone in Christ alone. Well, here's another way to talk about it. We are justified by faith. We are made right, righteous, before God. And justified people are created to be concerned about justice. That's why you feel all the way, all the feelings you feel when it comes to political issues and issues of justice. And although it's normal that you feel that way, that you get, when someone disagrees with you, your gut tells you they are being unjust. Although it's natural or understandable that you feel that way, it doesn't make it right. Because here's what we miss. We miss the self-awareness of a fallen heart and a fallen political world. Like, they give this illustration. It's like, when kids fight, that toy is mine. What are they saying? The just thing is that that toy should be in my possession. Right? That's justice. For you to have that toy and me not to have that toy, that's injustice. Like, this is how they think. Now, granted, we're more mature, right? Maybe. Maybe. We miss that we are fallen. We're not self-aware. We don't see justice like Jesus sees justice. We don't even see justice like Solomon saw justice. And he was wise in the scriptures. We've got to have some space that maybe it's not as clear as I see it. A disagreement, friends, is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It helps you wrestle through what you're thinking. It helps you listen to contrary viewpoints. I would argue that if you resist all sense of disagreement, you are resisting being made more into the image of Jesus. You are resisting genuine love. Because you've got to have disagreements to have a, a good relationship. It's just going to happen. But where disagreements go south and sour is when we personalize them. That our conviction 
This is an expression of my identity so that when you disagree with my conviction, not only are you against justice, you are against me. It's personal. You don't like my ideas because you don't like me, is what the narrative says. It's not true. It's not true. Now, they might not like you. I get that. But disagreement doesn't mean that. And you might not like them. But what happens is, I know, hurtful words get said. Degrading comments get made. You didn't get listened to. And all of that hurts. This is why one of the crucial parts of unity is to understand that conflict is inevitable. We've got to expect it. And therefore, be quick to forgive when the harsh word is said, when the degrading tone is used. Because what did Romans 15 say? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We have degraded our Savior. We have rejected His ways. We have loved ourselves over Him. Yes, those of you who have hurt others, you need to repent of that. But those of you who have been hurt, don't give yourself to bitterness. Forgive. And when you expect that conflict is a real thing, that it's going to happen, we don't, Romans 14, we don't quarrel, we don't hate, and we do not judge. What we need is wisdom. You're like, how do, I, how do I figure out if someone is being unjust or not being unjust? Like, how do, I, how do I weigh all this, friends? I wish it were a law. I wish I could just write it all out for you and it would just be like, boom, there it is. We're all at peace now. That's just not how it rolls. In the Spirit of God, we walk by wisdom. <laughs> a man named Dan White says this. He says, the change needed within Christianity will not come from more sermon downloads. Americans weekly consume 100,000 words, the equivalent to two books via snacking on social media blogs and cable news. The church does not need more convenient information. It needs a discipleship revolution. It needs a people so convinced that we need Christ, that there is just this massive deep dive into the Scriptures. That's where wisdom is going to come. Some of us are so confused because we don't know the book. And then we've come into this new realization, and it's like we're learning some new things. But just remember, this is a book. It's not a, it's not a tweet. It's not a few verses here and there. It's a book. Be slow to judge. Quick to listen. Meditate on the word day and night. It'll make us wise. It'll make us wise. I got a quote for you. Jonathan Lehman says this, and this is where I pray it both gives you clarity and hope when the fact that conflict will happen in the church, friends. We're going to disagree. Listen to this quote. There's been nothing like the church in the history of the world. Every other nation has been unified either by powerful men with swords 
or by family relations, including ancient Israel. Yet now a new nation exists, held together by neither sword nor family, but only by word and spirit. Indeed, it's a nation that doesn't presently possess a land. It's like God wanted the world to see what he alone could do. So he took a bunch of natural enemies, saved them by his son's blood and his spirit's power, and he created a unified, peace-sharing people. The local church is where enemy tribes start beating their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It's where black and white and rich and poor and young and old, educated and uneducated, American and Chinese, sanitation worker and senator unite. What does all this mean practically for us? It means you show up at the church's gathering on Sunday knowing your job is to beat those swords into plowshares. And I would put in parentheses, not beat one another. You expect to encounter that guy who rattles on and on about his political hobby horse. Or that couple who aligns themselves differently than you. And you recognize that these encounters are good and God-intended. We're not saying you necessarily abandon your own perspectives, but that you listen and you love. You have an opportunity to lower the sword and show the world another kingdom created by a supernatural power, end quote. That is what happens when you expect conflict rather than think it's something that's different or odd or strange. It frames our gatherings. It frames our relating to one another. And so unity is not uniformity. Unity assumes conflict, but unity also assumes difference. It assumes that we will be different. And therefore, we should delight in difference rather than hate it. There's tons of passages that talk about our differences. The same passages that talk about our unity also talk about our differences. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just give you one example. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you hear that? There's diversity of gifts and service and activities, but we're one. We're the same, this is another metaphor, the same body. We're one body. It'll say same spirit, same spirit, same spirit. One body, many members. Many members, one body. And he talks about that in verse 11 when he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek. So there's going to be ethnic differences. Slave or free. So there's going to be economic differences. All were made to drink of one spirit. The body does not consist of one member, but many. Difference is assumed in the New Testament church. It's assumed. And it's meant to be delighted in. It's meant to be delighted in. There are different gifts. There are different ethnicities. There are different backgrounds. Right? Isn't that like what 1 Corinthians 6 says? And such were some of you, 
And he gives this big list. Some of you are greedy and some of you are sexually immoral. And he just keeps going down the list. Like we've all got different stories that bring us here. Different sin temptations. Different convictions. We're different. One Christ. One hope in this world. His blood was shed in my place on behalf of my sin. One faith. Our faith is in Christ alone. He alone gets us to God. This is our hope. Remember, I talked about this idea, this prayer, this dream that we would be able to be a diverse people and yet unified. Unified. And the image that came to mind was like a, like a piece of art, a canvas. So you have this canvas that's here. Canvas has clear boundaries, right? I know we would love to make, sometimes some of you artists, you know, let's just make the carpet the canvas. Let's make the walls the canvas. You know, sometimes my kids think that's their canvas. You know, let's just do that when they were younger. You know, not my 18-year-old or anything. Okay, so, but a canvas has boundaries, right? This is the canvas. Our affirmation of faith as Treasuring Christ Church declares the boundaries and has declared those boundaries for 15 years. That this is what we are about. This is what we believe. 15 years. We do not insist in that document that you believe a certain way on the millennium or the end times. Just that Jesus is coming back. Or how often we should take the Lord's Supper. Or who gets to baptize somebody. Or let me use some fancy terms that some people want to divide over. Some are dispensationalists and some are covenantalists. We don't require you to be really clear on who you are in those labels. We define the boundaries. We've agreed to those boundaries as a church. That's what unifies us. It's what the scriptures teach. And now beyond these things, we're going to have disagreement. Mostly in how those things apply, right? We're going to have disagreement. And that disagreement requires us to have some wisdom. But it requires us to have some love. Get the canvas, the painting. As Pastor Travis so wonderfully preached from Isaiah 49... It's too small a thing to just use one color palette. To just be like, I'm only going to use the color orange on this canvas. You can do that. And if you're a really good artist, you could probably make it look pretty sweet. But that's not what Jesus did when he died. His glory was too big to be contained by one ethnic people. Instead, he purchased a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and called them one body. The church. And we've been saying this for years because the scriptures tell us this. And so we're going to fight with all of our might for the glory of God to try to reflect that we are not monocolored or monocultural, but we are multicultural for the glory of Jesus. He gets glory when diversity relates in unity. That's what we just talked about in the scriptures. So the the colors that are available to the artist are multifaceted shades and hues of all type 
And I'm not just speaking about skin color, I'm speaking about cultural. And so, as the painting gets painted, the art is so beautiful that the artist gets heralded as the greatest artist ever. That's our God. The canvas is his church. And he's painting a story. And we want to be a part of his story. We want to live inside his biblical boundaries. And that includes that there will be distinctives that remain. If you just mix all the colors, you basically get back to one color, right? We're going to remain to have distinctives. And those distinctives come together in a beautiful mosaic of one picture, one family, one church, one body, same mind, yet a diversity. And this is how, the reason I get this is this is how Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. He says this, grace was given to me that I would preach to the Gentiles. In this context, it's non-Jews. I'm going to preach to the nations. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's why two weeks ago we said we are about one thing. Treasuring Christ above all. Our aim is to receive and to preach the unsearchable. <laughs> that means we're not going to get tired of this. We're not going to, you know, get to the bottom and be like, okay, what's next? Unsearchable riches of Jesus. That's what the church is about. We're going to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of God. The mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the canvas, through the church, the manifold. That means if you're looking at a diamond, it would mean multifaceted. If you're looking at a painting, it would be multicolored. It would be the multiplicity of God's wisdom is going to be proclaimed through the church. How are we doing? Our unity proclaims to the world that we can be different and still be one. We can have different opinions. We can come from different backgrounds. We can have different stories. We can have different age. We can have different convictions and political bents. But we're one in Christ. And so... Every interaction with those who are different than us, what is beautiful is that it actually prepares us for the mission of God. How many unbelievers that you, do you talk to that are just like you? At minimum, if you trust Jesus and they don't, you have two different worldviews. But the more that you can kind of practice, so to speak, within the church, learning to agree to disagree, learning to respect one another, learning to love one another, the better you are positioned to be a missionary. The more you can cross cultural lines within the body of Christ, the better you are at being a cross-cultural missionary. God has designed the church to prepare you to give Him glory to the ends of the earth. Every interaction teaches you about love. Every interaction teaches you about Jesus. Dear friends, we've got to be careful. 
We cannot try to make the church into our own image. That's what we want. People leave churches all the time to go where second and third areas are aligned. It feels easier. But if you walk into a church and everybody agrees, not only on Christ alone is crucified, but on their political position, then all of a sudden you might begin to smell that it's politics equal to Jesus that saves. That's not how the Bible talks. Diversity, relating in harmony, gives one person glory. It's not earthly governments. It's not our individual convictions. It's Christ. We've got to be careful. We are not called to be a people to conform ex-church into our own image. I deal with church planting all over the nation and counsel and coach people, and this is what happens in church planting. Some people will leave a church because they're not happy with how that church is going in order to start a new work, but deep in their heart, whether they know it or not, they're trying to form that new church into their, their own image, into their own likenesses, to have exactly what they want. And then they get let down. Some of the statistics are in the first five years, you lose 90% of those who started with you. Because you have these expectations that it's going to be just like I thought it would be, and then it's not. You know why it's not? Because we're sinful. I'm sinful. You're sinful. This is why unity demands endurance. It demands patience. It demands gentleness. It demands delighting that we get to be different together. Expecting conflict. But at the end of the day, Unity is worth fighting for because unity assumes there is a way to live at peace. There is. There's a way to live at peace. And that way to live at peace is to submit ourselves to Jesus. I just have one passage to read to you and we, we will leave or sing first. But here it goes. Ephesians 2. For Jesus himself is our peace. And he's our peace that he might create in himself one new person, one new man, in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both, differing opinions, different ethnicities, might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, killing hostility. He's changing hearts so that hostility would be put away. And that person of peace, Jesus, has come to live inside of us. And what is he doing? He is building us up together as the dwelling place of God. So if there's anything to hear about this passage, this passage is about the crucial aspect of Christianity that Christianity is receiving more than it's doing for God. Who's doing all the work in this passage? He himself is our peace. He himself, through his death on the cross, has reconciled the two warring factions into one. He himself has killed hostility, and he himself is building them up together into one new people. That's the scriptures. Jesus is doing that. What's our role? We're not meant to be the stream. We're meant to be the well that holds the water. We're not meant to be the stars in the sky. We're meant to be night. And the light invades our life. 
This is how the scriptures talk. We are recipients. God is the one that will deliver the perfect ball and it'll land in the hands. That's a football image in case you were lost. We are recipients. And when Christ changes you, he not only makes the blind see and the deaf hear, and the dead come to life, but he also comes to live inside, to constantly work for what he has commanded for you to be. How in the world we have peace? We have the person of peace living inside our hearts as a mighty rushing river that he just says, receive, just receive. It's back where I was before. How do we be a people of peace? We sit with him. We get wisdom by sitting with him, by praying, being changed, being humble. And in so doing, as a recipient, what do you have that you haven't received? There's nothing. You've received everything. And he, the mighty rushing river, is working peace in your life. And when he does that, then all of a sudden, we become peacemakers. Dear friends, may we be a church. May we be a church that takes unity seriously and delights that unity is not uniformity. And in so doing, we learn how to have unity even amidst disagreement. Let's pray. Father, please, I pray you would help us. (laughs) I wish I had it all figured out. Oh God, I don't. But I trust you. I know that we're going to disagree. I do. And Father, I just pray that you would take your word and you would feed our souls and you would make us peacemakers. That you would help us in this moment to trust you. To trust you that you are able to overcome what seems insurmountable. To bring unity. Father, we want unity in our church. We want unity in the church at large. We want unity because we want you to get glory among those who have never tasted and seen that you are good. Father, I pray for those who have been hurt by not necessarily the disagreement, but by the disagreeable. The hurt tone, the dehumanizing or degrading language. Father, I just pray that you would be that river of healing and peace to their soul and give them such an awareness of your presence that they have the strength to forgive and to continue to strive for unity. Father, I pray for those who love justice but feel like dividing over secondary things. I pray that you would grant them wisdom. You would grant them such love that they endure. They don't give up. They press in rather than move away. Father, I pray that you would grow our church. This is a bold prayer after experiencing all that we've felt in 2020. I pray that you would grow our church in diversity. I think maybe now more than ever in 2020, the weight feels heavier to pray that prayer. And yet your word says that that's where you get glory. And so, Father, we pray. We pray through the encouragement and endurance of the scriptures that we would live in such harmony with one another that with one voice we would give glory to you 
by the blood of Jesus. God, make us that one voice in the midst of our diversity. May we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Father, please move.